0: New Jersey, the most widely known for its pork roll, parkway, and Bruce Springsteen. It's nicknamed the Garden State for a good reason.
1: Nestled within the Delaware River Valley is a little gastronomical haven, and at the heart of this haven is a cooking school on a farm. It's unique. It's unpretentious.
0: And it's dedicated to teaching people how to make really delicious food.
1: This is The Farm Cooking School, the podcast.
0: Hi. We are your hosts,
1: Kendra Thatcher
0: and Carl Wagner. Every other week or so, we are dedicated to bringing you onto our farm and into our kitchen.
1: We work with quite an accomplished culinary community, and we want to spread the love, knowledge, and passion because that's important.
0: So let's get cooking.
1: On today's episode, we introduce you to the farm cooking school and the masterminds behind it, Ian Kenauer and Shelly Wiseman.
0: We'll go into the kitchen with Ian and talk sourdough, like... Really, really amazing sourdough. And finally, we'll speak with the one and only Fabrizio Lanza of the Anatasca Lanza Cooking School in Sicily.
1: Everything begins with a journey.
0: Kendra grew up here, moved back after years in NYC.
1: And Carl found his way here by way of Wisconsin through New York City.
0: And now we're all nestled in this tight-knit culinary community right in the heart of the Delaware River Valley.
1: And here's how this community here at the farm came together. It was a natural next step for both of the school's founders, Ian and Shelley, who, as you'll hear, have quite an interesting history together.
0: Wherever their roads led them in the past, editing at Gourmet under Ruth Rachel, a show on PBS, staging in French kitchens, and owning a cooking school in Mexico City, they ended up here.
1: And here's what they have to say about that.
2: This is sort of like part of the journey um, that, that we now currently find ourselves on it started, um, 17, 18 years ago when we met.
3: That's right. That's, we met, we met at Gourmet Magazine. It's a long time ago. I was in the kitchen, the okay. test kitchens right. of Gourmet Magazine, developing recipes and along came Ian. And so how did you convince Ruth to get, to give you a job?
2: Well, so she, she had just started at Gourmet and I was very excited to try and figure out how to get into a professional kitchen without actually getting into a restaurant kitchen. And she's, she said, Oh, well you should come in and take a look at the test kitchen. And, uh, and I did that and, you know, did a little walkthrough. And I, I remember meeting you along with everybody else that worked there that day. Mm. You probably don't remember meeting me. Cause I was just some
3: Not, not particularly. Right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but that sort of like, uh, she showed me that and I was like, Oh, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. I didn't, know that a test kitchen existed, you know, like it's sort of, it's a very niche position
3: in general, when you start out in cooking, you don't necessarily know that these options these right.
2: yeah. do exist on my way out. I said, well, uh, I would really like a job there doing whatever. And she said, well, I'll run the idea past the people who run the kitchen. You know, it's not really my call. And I was like, "Oh, I see. So, so you're not the boss." And she goes, "Oh, I'm the boss."
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I remember that so distinctly. I was like, <laughs> okay, so so then I proceeded to call her office uh, every day for a month, and eventually uh, Ruth Cave.
3: Well, that's great, and 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 I do think it it's very sad that Gourmet doesn't exist anymore because um, among magazines, it's one of very few that had as many food editors as we did because we were developing most of the recipes in-house. And to have that level of talent and a variety of talent there to give feedback, um, you know, was was just a great little think tank.
2: Right, it was a think tank.
3: So how did we get from there to here?
2: Oh man, I don't know. (laughs) Well, Well, I left
3: Gourmet first. Right.
2: When when What year did you leave? I left in
3: 2008 to help my sister with her Uh twins.
2: And I stayed on another year and then the magazine went out of business Right, closed it.
3: So you had no choice. (laughs) I had to leave. (laughs) But to go out into the big, bad world. And I, you know, that was the downturn in the market, October 2008, when I came back. So uh, it was a difficult time and I did every kind of catering and private chefing and whatever I could think of and had worked on um, testing a cookbook for Roberto Santibanez on Mexican food. Um, And then finally I got, you know, a a job in another magazine. Uh, But it wasn't necessarily a good fit for me um, the way gourmet was. So I was looking for something else. In the meantime, you uh, had rented my apartment for a month. That's how we really got back in touch with each other while you were, doing your show.
2: Yeah, right.
3: And when I found out you were looking for a place to start a cooking school and that you'd found a place and you were working on it, my light bulb went on and said, and I said, I'm coming down to see what you're up to. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> you
2: showed up and a month later you quit your job and you moved here.
3: That's right. <laughs> That's right. And I uh, never regretted it and I am, um, so delighted to have found this new life here. Uh, it's really wonderful, both as far as the school goes and as far as life beyond that in Delaware, uh, Central Delaware Valley. It's it's a hidden gem that people yeah, don't know about.
2: That's true. It's um you know it's we when we talk about it, you know it's it's like the Hudson Valley or it's like Napa Valley, and except that people know about those places. And in some ways, it's almost good that they don't
3: know about this place. Because we're so close to New York City. Because we're so close. And Philly.
2: Yeah. Um, and it, we're just like, there are farms everywhere here. And that was that was what attracted me to the area, is that I could you know drive two miles that way and get pasture-raised pig and drive three miles this way and get organic vegetables. And they're just the most pristinely beautiful, beautiful things.
3: And you were introduced to it by Christopher Hirshheimer and That's right. Melissa Hamilton. That's right. right. Yeah, they did the, the photography
2: for my cookbook, The Farm, and they invited me down to do like one studio shot in Lambertville, and like I dr- I remember driving into town thinking like, oh, this is the place I've been looking for. You know, it's charming, it's sophisticated, but it's rural. You know, it it has it has all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I remember the the first dinner that we did. When we opened the school yeah, and basically we, we set a date, which gave me a deadline because I was installing the toilet yes. and tiling the bathroom.
3: <laughs> and you had to like get
2: that done. I had to get it done before we could do anything. <laughs> and so you came down and we did a dinner together. And what was fun about that is that I got to sort of show off all this produce that I had been finding in the, in the area. You know, I remember we, you did your baba dip and i got those little tiny baby carrots <laughs> right
3: right and when with I their greens just tink, tink, yeah when tink. i got
2: them from the farm i was like i was like oh my god these are the most beautiful things i've ever seen <laughs> you know and the cherry tomatoes and, I, and we put you you really put together the menu for that dinner
3: well i we had a really fun discussion on the phone when i was still in connecticut and you started with um i mean i i was like well you know we' were going to do kind of a Mexican oriented meal but using all the fresh produce that was available so I'd say well how about this and you say oh we could use you know the baby carrots and the you know, right. whatever the pea shoots. Uh, produce yeah. that we could find and and, and, it, and it really kind of blossomed from, from there so that that was a little bit of the think tankiness that I that I enjoyed at Gourmet of being able mm-hmm. to just discuss the menu like that and and let it kind of grow of its own accord so right. that was really fun yeah. And it was a, a great success.
2: Yeah, we sold out.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, oh, you know what else we had it was Jean Marie's lamb chops.
3: Ah, uh, all right. Well, so we were on Tullamore Farms um, and Jean Marie Mitchell, the owner, um, had learned how to take care of cows and anim- uh, and sheep to the point where she was really the cow whisperer. And she gave them such great grasses and pasture land and everything. and. Um, that I've never had meat that tasted as good as that. You know, people say grass-fed meat is drier, and that's true. If you don't know how to cook it, it's true. Well, if you overcook it. Right. I mean, in other words, it, grass-fed meat is best to have rare, you know, raw or medium rare. Mm-hmm. Um, you really don't want to go beyond that, uh, unless you're doing a stew it, kind it. of right. thing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and her was the sweetest, most herbal tasting. Um, uh, you know. Beef steak. That I it was, it yeah. was incredible. It yeah. really was. So uh, we, I think we did, um, uh, we did um, steak tartare in that first menu. Yeah. So it wasn't all Mexican at all. And then Paul Grimes, who was another one of our collaborators at Gourmet said, I want to come up and help you guys plate." He's a food stylist. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so the three of us were there doing that.
2: I, re- I remember we had all these plates lined up and it was a, uh, you did a, a cherry tomato coulis with some uh, pea shoots It was like, it was a very sophisticated little salad. And he was garnishing it with some sort of herb and he was just like flicking the herbs from three feet up above the plate and just watching them fall down. And then if it didn't go where he wanted, he'd just take it up and do it again. (laughs) Just like the shower of herbs that were coming out of his hands.
3: But somehow it always worked well when he did it, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, he had, he had, he studied art, didn't he? Yes. yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so like he sees the plate through... Yeah, it he, were he
3: drew and painted and all yeah. those things. He's illustrated he illustrated uh, Ruth's book. Where do you think the cooking school is today compared you, to four oh, years ago when to it started? Where we
2: were. Uh well, I mean we've physically we've moved locations. We're at one of the we're at a different little river town, but only 10 minutes or so from where we started
3: and we're working directly with the woman who you introduced me to in the first dinner who is now your wife
2: right malika
3: who runs roots to river farm yes and now we share the space and have her vegetables growing around us as well as on the, on the other side of the river
2: and actually as as we're talking they're setting up downstairs for their csa pickup
3: right after, after we
2: finished a class this morning. So it really is a space that, that gets a lot of use. And, and even though they're different uses, CSA pickup, cooking class, we did a dinner last night. Um, they're all related in it, it very very closely it's called a, the
3: farm cooking school remember it's your name yes I remember. <laughs> it's all it's all part of the bargain all part of the bargain exactly. so it is growing into its name i think more and more which is so fantastic
2: not only that but um you know when it started out it was just you and me yes and so if we weren't teaching classes together or separately we were te- you and i were teach we did all of it Yeah, We did the dishwashing, we did the mopping of the floor and the cleaning of the stove. And, you know, we've grown to the point where um, other people have seen this exciting thing that we're doing and they've become a part of this family, basically, you know. And so we have opportunities for people to learn and we have opportunities for other people to teach. And so it's it's great to see that grow. And we're at the point now where it's growing really rapidly.
3: Which is always refreshing.
2: It is. Yeah, It's, it's a it's a it's a great. Refreshing is exactly the right word. You know, it resets you in a way. Yeah. It gives you this this. It you turn the page to something new, it's something maybe you didn't think of. You know, and again, that that's the learning that it just continues and continues and continues.
3: So you just came back from a trip in Italy, mm-hmm. uh, and it, you felt been feeling very inspired by that. So, what what is that? How does that? Change or influence your perspective on the school now. Do you feel that there's there's something you can directly relate to where you see the future of the school from that?
2: Well, I think the thing, it's not that I learned it so much, is that it was reinforced when I was in Italy, and that they are their f- food point of view starts with the land, and whatever works well and grows well in that land is the thing that they highlight and focus on. And so if the land produces olive trees, guess what? You're an olive farmer <laughs> and you figure out ways to make your product unique. You know, um, if, if, if the woods are good for pigs, guess what? You make prosciutto, you know, and your family's been doing it for 400 years where you make balsamic vinegar, you know? And, and so it's fun to think about it that way, you know, starting with the ingredients instead of starting with the concept of the dish, but Absolutely. forming the concept of the dish based on what you have. And like the best things always happen when you have the, the fewest paints to paint with.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, we definitely found that at Gourmet that, you know, the 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 more specific your task was, the easier it was to be imaginative. If it's too wide open then then nothing is is rubbing against anything else. Um right. you know.
2: Yeah, that, the creative process in general is something that I I really enjoy it, I know that you enjoy it too, and I think that we have created an environment here where other people um, have the tools and we enable them to have the tools to be part of that creative process.
3: You know, I think what's important to both of us is, is to teach people to be confident in the kitchen, give them the tools to be confident in the kitchen and to be creative and curious and create their own thing. Um, and uh, we're lucky that we share this place, not just with Roots River Farm, but also Locust Light um, Farm. Uh, Amanda uh, Mitkiff, who is a um, herbalist and apothecary and does amazing things with herbs. I know and, you,
2: you try not to call her a witch, but she really is a good one. <laughs> She's a good witch.
3: <laughs> She's a good witch. Uh, yeah. And then you know, with with uh, we have um, Goat Hill now. We don't have her more anymore, but we have Goat Hill Farm near us with Evan and Tatiana, uh, who supply us with most of our meat. Um, and,
2: and just to expand on that relationship you know, one of the things that we produce a lot of here is, is is scrap, vegetable scraps, compost. Yeah. And at one point we had tried to, you know, put them back into the compost pile. But one of the problems that we see a lot in small farms is which you don't even think about until it happens is that the rats would come in and eat all the compost be attracted by that. And then they would go and eat all the seeds that were just planted. And then they would go and eat all the squash that was in the field. And so in order to get rid of the rats, Um, we started taking our compost to the animal farm, to Goat Hill Farm, and they feed it in addition to forage and other good things to their pigs and their chickens and that sort of thing. So it's a a great way that we can then recycle and then we buy the pigs and the chickens back, you know, and and use them in cooking classes. Um, So it's a nice little, very neat food system that we've started to create for ourselves here. Um, It's well-rounded, you know, it feels, it feels right.
3: I'm happy.
0: Baking and breaking bread is a common thread which knows no borders, status, or time. If nothing else, the human race has bread in common. It's a symbol of peace and a snapshot of the environment from which its yeast feasts. So let's go into the kitchen with Ian and get intimate with sourdough.
1: Ian, what are we making?
0: So today we're going to make some sourdough
2: bread. This is a bread that's made with uh, wild yeast. So it's completely airborne. We've, We've captured it. We don't add any commercial yeast to it. Um, which gives us a whole lot of flavor. And we have it to the point now where we have our sourdough starter uh, and it's behaving the way that we want it to behave every time. Uh, And it gives us really consistent loaves of bread. But uh, ours is very happy. We feed it every day. Uh, We keep it at room temperature.
1: Can you explain to me um, wild yeast? Sure. where we get it from. Where do we capture this Where wild, wild yeast? Capture this wild yeast from.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, so yeast is is all around us. It's in every breath that we take. It's actually a fungus. Um, and you know, it's a it's a living, breathing, reproducing, eating thing. Um, and uh, in order to capture it, we just need to create an environment that it likes. And so, you know, what we did was we put together some water and some flour and a little bit of honey because it also likes sugar. Uh, sugars, just like we do, you know, and gets sort of amped up when it eats eats sugar, just like we do, um, and we put that out at room temperature, and the yeast that's in the air found it and settled in and started to eat that uh, flour, eat the protein in the flour, and then we kept feeding it and kept feeding it and kept feeding it and put it on sort of a, reg- a regular diet, you wow. might say, of flour and water, and uh, it just it really likes that. As soon as we feed it, it wakes up and it it, it expands and it, creates a whole lot of carbon dioxide and as long as we keep feeding it then it doesn't create too much alcohol if it creates too much alcohol it'll it'll die
1: and then you just have to start then
2: you have to start over over. right so
1: how old is this so this
2: one is two and a half years old um it uh, you know it is of the place and if we took this somewhere else and you know let it keep living, kept feeding it. Uh, in a week, it would no longer be this very specific yeast. It would be a different yeast.
1: So then this starter is actually from when we moved the cooking school from Stockton to here. Exactly.
2: Right. We started wow. it almost the first month that we that we moved into this space.
1: Awesome. All right. So show me what we're doing here and walk me through it so that we, our listeners can be part of the okay. experience.
2: So we weigh everything and we do it in, in kilograms. I'm going to get a bowl. There we go. Just because it's more, it's a little more accurate. Mm -hmm. So, 200 grams looks like. Well, let's do it right now. Here's the starter. You can smell that. Oh my god! What you smell is you smell alcohol. Yeah. You know, you smell that, Um, and which is what it's making, Uh, along with carbon dioxide. You can see the little bubbles in there. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pour 200 grams of this into that bowl. All right. So then we're going to add some water to that. So I'm going to zero the scale, just so I don't have to do too much math. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to add about 250 grams of water. This is cold water room temp hot water this is room temperature the the temperature of the water will definitely make a difference in how quickly or slowly the yeast um eats and you know produces carbon dioxide got it i'm just going to drop it a time here because i'm really close and i don't want to go over um so yeah this is room temperature this is well water we have a chlorination system here, and chlorine, you know, kills things, including yeast. So, so I go directly to the well for the water for the bread because okay. I don't want it to be inhibited at all, um, in the in, you know as it's trying to rise and trying Got to do it. its thing. Okay. So now we're gonna add some flour, zero the scale again, and we're gonna use bread flour. We need about four hundred and fifteen grams. If you want good bread, you're gonna need gluten. Gluten is a protein. It's what the yeast actually eats. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm gonna add some salt to this too, like 10 grams of salt, that's good. Um, So the yeast comes in, it starts eating the gluten, eating the protein and reproducing. And so there's there's less, the longer the yeast rises, Mm -hmm. the less gluten is actually in the bread. There's still gonna be some, of course, and we need it for the structure of the bread, which is important structure is uh, it's actually what we call a gluten skin on the outside of the bread. Uh, but we'll get there, we'll get there. Hold on, I'm ahead <laughs> of myself. So, all right, so I'm just going to stir this together here. So we have the flour, the starter, the water, and some salt. Cool. And that's it. And I'm just stirring it together with a, a little plastic spatula in this bowl. And I'm going to stir it together until it, it is like a, we call it a shaggy mass, right? So it's not actually... Um, together as a dough yet. Then I'm gonna leave it alone for at least an hour. Okay. This is a process called autolase, in which the uh, the flour hydrates more evenly. So the water get basically seeps into the ground flour mm-hmm. more slowly. And as it does that, it activates the gluten. Okay. And so in an hour from now, this will be really elastic. We'll be able to stretch it. It's not now, you can see, like it's sort of falling apart. You know, that, that shagginess. Like, if I picked it up, you see it just, like, yep. falls back into the bowl. We'll come back to this in an hour, and uh, we'll take a look at it. All
1: right,
2: cool. All right, so, so we covered our dough with a, a dry kitchen cloth. So you can see it. First of all, it yes. puffed up, yep. right? Um, because the yeast is, is happy. And I'm going to bring this out onto the work surface. This is an unfloured work surface. Right, so first I wanna flour my hands a little bit so it doesn't stick to my hands. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a wettish dough. dough. Okay. Wet doughs make better bread because they create steam in the oven. We'll talk, I'm, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so.
1: No, but that's good to know though, because I would pull it out and be like, oh, do I need to flour the surface? Right. Do I need to add right. more bread, like more uh, we are, to We it? are
2: gonna add flour to it, but first, the first thing we're gonna do is just sort of uh, play with it a little bit, right? So I just picked up the edge of it and folded it over itself. See that? And look how much, this is dough. Yeah. You know, that the time that it took to rest, it did it by, it kneaded itself. Right? Yeah, it's super cool. And like a lot of home bakers will spend 10 minutes kneading when you don't have to. So it's- so much simpler already.
1: It's so much simpler already, so, so much simpler oh already
2: right. So now that I just folded over itself and sort of stretched it and saw how elastic it was, I'm gonna pick it up. Now I'm gonna flour the surface. Okay and put it back down on that floured surface. Keep my hands floured because again, I don't want it to stick to me, because it's sticky. Good bread dough is sticky, remember that, don't be afraid <laughs> of it. Now I'm gonna work, I'm gonna pull one edge up away from me and then fold it into the center of the bread and sort of like pat it in so it sticks. And okay. work all the way around in a circle.
1: How many times do you go around?
2: Yeah, twice, okay. something like that. And I can feel it getting, feel, start to feel really tight. Yeah. You can even see how tight that looks.
1: So is this creating the gluten skin? Yes.
2: Okay. Right, so we're, what we're actually doing is we're dealing with the underside here, right? Now I'm gonna flip it over. So I'm gonna get rid of some of the flour on my surface because now I'm gonna do a like, pulling technique. Okay. And again, I'm gonna keep my hands flour because I don't want to stick. And I'm gonna sort of like, as if I were playing poker and I just won the whole game, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna like drag all the chips toward me, mm-hmm. I'm gonna gently drag this dough Toward me. And as I'm doing that, it's stretching the top. All right. So then I turn it, do it again. Just
3: give like a little quarter turn. Yeah,
2: quarter turn, another quarter turn, and then a final quarter turn. A tight ball, basically. And look over here. You see there, there's a little tear. Yeah. But what you see is there's a skin on the outside. That tear shows you that there's a skin. Yeah. Right? That skin is is, is the gluten skin. Uh And that's gonna keep the shape of this loaf. Because if we didn't have that, you know, it's, wet, it's water and flour. It's just gonna go like blah blah, blah right? And like expand out onto the surface right. if we don't create that skin. But by creating that skin, um, it's gonna keep its structure. Awesome. And as the yeast keeps uh, creating more carbon dioxide, that skin's gonna trap it so that there's, there's more air, air bubbles in the bread. Got it. All right, so now this guy, we're gonna let him sleep for an hour dust the outside that gluten skin with flour so it doesn't stick and I'm gonna grab a basket so this basket is lined with a cloth and I just put some flour on it okay Um, and we're gonna put this loaf that we just made upside down in there Uh, and it's gonna rest for an hour it's gonna keep rising and then in an hour we'll be able to bake it off
1: awesome so the area that we were pulling and tucking to which was the bottom is now
2: up on top that's right Correct. yeah so the top became the bottom became the top again yeah which will become the bottom again right when we turn it out of this this basket I hope that's not too confusing no
1: not
2: at all okay so an
1: hour's gone by
2: and here is our basket with our dough in it and you can see it's risen a little bit it has risen indeed it's risen indeed the I mean, there's so many references of bread throughout all religions. Mm-hmm. You know, Christianity is just one example. You know, that it's, it's so ingrained in our belief systems yeah. um, as, as a, a thing that we share with the community, you know, um, which makes it really important. And in fact, you know, the, every town used to have a bread oven and everyone would take their, their dough down there in the morning and stand there for an hour while it baked and talk to each other. You know, like it was Twitter of the, of the Middle Ages, you know, <laughs> except it's actually face to face. And that's something that we're really missing now. You know, no, one, we don't tend to bake our own bread, first of all. Second of all, we don't do it as a community. Um, you know, and, and we have become, look how polarized and isolated we've all become. You know, and what if what if we started investing in like bread ovens in every town? I think that could do wonders for yeah. us. So, yeah, it's, it has risen Oh, um, awesome. It looks beautiful. Now it's time to bake it. Okay. So this is a peel, this wooden thing. It looks like a, a little small pizza thing that you see at the mm-hmm. pizzeria. Um, this is just a smaller version. So I'm gonna dust it with a little flour.
1: I do wanna just make a note right here that Ian has not been using a ton of flour, which I kind of feel like we also <laughs> feel like we need to do and, like, have this, like, big floury mess around. Like, he's just, like, been reusing.
2: Yeah, yeah, I just reused then... the same little pile that I've had in front of me here. Exactly. You know? And it's like a tablespoon. It's yeah. not that much. No. You know, And I just we just want to prevent it from sticking to anything. Right. right? So now I'm going to turn this loaf out onto the peel, and, and once again, the bottom will become the top. Yep. Right? So there we go and you see it's kept its shape it's kept its structure part of that is because of the gluten skin part of that is because the bowl is shaped as the same shape right right so i'm just gonna add a little bit of flour to the top of the loaf and this is really just for looks because we're gonna cut it now we need to have an exit for the carbon dioxide because when we put this in the oven the yeast is going to go nuts for a couple minutes as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter and it's going to create just a ton of carbon dioxide So we need a place where that can get out, because if we don't do that, we might get like a bulge over here on the side Mm -hmm. where the yeast is trying to escape. So you made three vertical lines. Yeah, that's just sort of how I do it. Um, Every baker will have their own sort of signature when it Mm -hmm. comes to slashing their bread. Um, And you know, if you're talking about like really nice uh, artisanal loaves, you know, the bakers know whose bread that is, by the way, it's slashed. Mm Yeah, which is, which is cool.
1: And about how far down did you go into
2: the meat? Uh, half an inch. Half something inch. like that. Okay. So now I'm going to take this over to the oven, open the oven, and then I can just slide it right onto a baking sheet that's preheated in the oven. So just slide it right there.
1: Perfect. And that's it. What is the oven at?
2: Oven's at 450. Um, this oven runs a little hot. So anywhere between 450, 475, 500, you want to bake hot. Uh, because you're going to get what's called oven spring okay. and that this loaf is just going to go whoosh, like that in the first 10 minutes of baking. Really? Um, again, that's all the that extra carbon dioxide that the yeast is producing. Um, and is being trapped in there by the gluten and, uh, all the water that's in this dough, like, as I said, this is a wet sticky dough. All that water is going to go into the oven as it gets hotter, right? Because this is a 450 degree oven water evaporates at 212 degrees. So most of the water in this loaf is going to evaporate, creating steam in the oven, and that steam's gonna give us a really nice, crispy, crunchy crust.
1: Awesome. All right, so then how long is this going to bake for?
2: Probably about 45 minutes. Wow. We'll come and we'll, we'll check it, we'll rotate the loaf, um, because every oven has hot spots, okay. you know, so the back of the oven might cook faster than the front of the oven, so we'll just rotate it around and make sure it cooks evenly.
1: So, now we're back.
2: So. We just pulled this loaf out of the oven. Um, I, I'm not gonna take this temperature because I can knock on it and it sounds hollow, sort of like an empty drum. Um, and the crust on it has, I mean, it's a crusty crust because it's such a hydrated dough, so I can just squeeze it a little bit. And you can you can hear that uh, that crust on there, which is what we want. I mean, that's, that's a good loaf of bread.
1: Oh my God, it smells so good. <laughs>
2: right? I mean, the whole room smells oh, like yeast. It smells like a bakery in here. It
1: does, it does, it does. Um, now, I mean, obviously we're going to taste this, but we have a bunch of different things in front of us. We have some olive oil with some dried herbs. We have some butter. What was the butter that you made the other night for the dinner? There's none of that left, by the way.
3: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So this is a fun thing that I've been playing with. I've been taking a vegetable and pressure cooking it until it's like completely falling apart like mush. And then I blend that with equal part butter, actual butter, to make, in this case, it was a fennel butter. So Mm -hmm. I, I pressure cooked fennel. Um, blended that with butter, a little bit of salt just to season it, and then to serve it, we just sprinkle some fresh herbs over top and some some uh, like fleur de sel, some crunchy salt. And uh, here's one thing that 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 is important to point out: we like, we don't want to cut into this loaf uh, until it cools off because mm. it's still baking, you know. And right. if you if you if we were to cut into this now, it would get sort of like uh, dense and spongy, not in a good way. Um, so we want it to cool off. And, and until it, at the very least it's warm or entirely cool. And then if you want warm bread, you know, you slice it and then you put it back in the oven for five minutes. That's that's fine. That's how you get warm bread on the table. This,
1: I think, is like the hardest thing for everybody who bakes bread is letting it just sit there. Same thing with like pies and cakes and all that, like just letting it sit. It's got
2: to rest. It's got to rest. It's got to rest.
1: All right, well, we are going to end it here so we can dive into this once it rests. Um, but I can't stand the sound of my chewing on, on the recording.
3: <laughs> so, so we're not going to record so that. So we're
1: going we're to spare all of you. But trust me, we've had this bread multiple times. And it is, I mean, it barely lasts three days in my house. It's unbelievable.
2: Happy baking.
1: What's so amazing to me is that baking bread started off as a staple for each of these classes. And just as the cooking school has evolved... This piece of us has evolved into a much larger thing that the school does.
0: Yeah. Now, in addition to the classes, we're baking bread, like a couple of dozen loaves weekly for Malaika's markets and CSA members. Um, and it's really kind of grown into a thing. People come asking for a sourdough all the time.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. So back in October, we had the distinct honor of hosting Fabrizia Lanza for a special farm to table dinner featuring recipes from her cookbook, Coming Home to Sicily. This was special to us here at the farm because we were able to hear her perspective on running a cooking school in Italy, but more importantly, her passion and emphasis on teaching people about local food ways. Shelly sat down with Fabrizia the morning after the dinner to talk about all these things and more. Hi Fabrizia,
3: it's so nice to have you here with us. Um, I would love to uh, know what uh, you thought of the dinner last night at the school.
4: Exquisite, of course. Of course, <laughs> of course. What was it like to have other people cooking your
3: recipes? I love that. Mm-hmm. I would, I would sign up for that for A whole all the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so tell me about your cooking school. Um, what, uh, what is, what is your vision for your cooking school?
4: So um, the cooking school was started by my mother many, many years ago, at the end of the 80s, and uh, I took over roughly 10 years ago. And um, what could I say? Uh, The school has um, a very strong uh, educational vision. Mm -hmm. So uh, I realized the more I've been cooking and, and dealing with the school, the more there is this uh, huge disconnection, people have this huge disconnection from um, the food, the ground, the soil, where the food comes from, how food needs to be processed in order to be good food and how finally to cook it. So these three steps, soil, processing of the ingredient and finally cooking is what I'm into and what in my general idea of the school is what I like to share with the students. My impression is that people are very uh, intimidated towards cooking, towards choosing. If you get in a store of wine, what can you choose, especially... Uh, Americans, but I would say now all young people from all over the world, a lot of them have not grown in an environment where there was somebody cooking. So a lot of them don't have this internal compass that helps them choose what is good for them, what is good, what is not good for them. So uh, what I want to try to share more than teach with these people is to think and taste at the same time so by tasting good food by tasting good olive oil by tasting good pasta or good bread you get this uh, you know the, the the body has a memory and you get this memory you get this imprinting that leads you then in your own country to choose the good stuff this is what i want them to take away so tell me about your current projects. So my current projects, uh, I have this uh, documentary that was uh, fundraised yesterday on Kickstarter, so I'm very happy, and it's about the bitter flavors of Sicily. It's called Amaro. I did a first documentary four years ago called Amuri. I hope Americans won't get mixed up with this. <laughs> Amuri means love, and this documentary, the first one was about the relationship that we have, we still have in Sicily between our saint festivals and the food that is cooked during those festivals. And, um, and it's available on YouTube. Anyone who digits Amori can can look at it on YouTube. And while Amaro is another story, it's about, um, about the importance in Sicily, in Italy, and I would say as an example for the whole world uh, of how bitter, bitter flavors are uh, important to uh, build up our palate, uh, to balance sweetness, acidity, sourness,
3: uh, we forget about bitter flavors, and w- would you say that Italy is more? I mean, there are so many. Uh, when I think of Campari and other um, liqueurs, and uh, um, Radicchio and uh, different lettuces, that bitter is is much much greater part of your uh, Absolutely. palate than the American palate. Absolutely, I would say more than many other
4: palates. I mean, this idea of bitter came up to me. Uh, when one day a Mexican student said, "But things here are all so bitter," and I had never realized, and uh, because I'm used to it, as as you say, so uh, but bitter is also something that uh, somehow. Um, expresses our culture and our idea that food is much more than a recipe. Food is layered, layered of content, layered of history. Bitter greens were harvested and foraged when people had nothing to eat. Bitter greens nowadays are a delicacy. Bitter greens are in, uh, bitter almonds are in every type of almond pastry you have in Sicily. And it's the real flavor of almonds. I did a tasting of bitter almonds at Boston university a few days ago because nobody knows that behind a bit of flavor there's always a very wide uh rainbow of shades of flavors and of sweetness eventually mm. and if you taste one of these bitter almonds it's your, your mouth the first instant is coated with bitterness it's terrible and then <laughs> after a few seconds you have a whole shade of, uh, and, and, and kind of, um, uh, how do you say, sfumature. A, bit, a lot of the, different degrees of um, of flavors.
3: So this is what I want to tell in my documentary. And how about, you know, uh, Amaro, bitterness, um, as a reflection of, of life in Italy? Would you, is there...
4: That's a good question. It's Yeah, of course, bitterness is kind of tied into bitter flavors, because, as I said before, people used to forage because they had nothing else to eat. So you would have pasta with bitter greens and that was it. And, and you know, now we, we think of peasant food as, you know, the best and the richest. But in old days, people didn't have good olive oil, didn't have salt. So try and eat some roughly boiled greens with uh, dumped on top of a dish of pasta with no seasoning. It's not delicious. So... <laughs> um there's definitely i mean a, a dark side to all this as i as i mentioned yesterday night this documentary starts from a procession that is held in Caltanissetta small town not far from where i live where um there is a there's a community of people who were the 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 sellers of bitter greens at the farmers market in this town, and they're called Folliamari, and these guys obviously are not wealthy people. They are probably the poorest people in the in the town, but they are the first ones to carry the Christ uh, in the procession, and while they carry the Christ, they song they sing. These beautiful Greek, ancient Greek litanies. So for me, this was the starting point of the story because again, they are the guys who provide bitterness to the city. They are uh, still the guys who lead the procession. So in some ways, they and they, while they lead the procession, they're singing these very old sor- songs full of sorrowness. No, mm. so it's all this mixture that can somehow. Uh, um is it contained in the bitter flavors of sicily and this is what i think is interesting
3: so america uh and italian food what would you say are um uh, american misconceptions of italian food
4: <sighs> eh, this is a this is a long question <laughs> um
3: Many, many misconceptions.
4: (laughs) Yeah, but generally I think that um, there is a big, big general misconception, for example, on the fact that America looks at Italy and the whole of Mediterranean as the model for good, healthy food. And uh, first of all, I think that Mediterranean diet is something we need to discuss about because there's no such thing as a Mediterranean diet. It's an American concept that was figured out in the 50s, which has all my respect, but uh, there's no such thing as a Mediterranean diet. I mean, I differently from in Greece, from Turkey, from Morocco. And uh, there's, there's not uh, a common base based on food there are different similarities that but that's another big question so we have we provide the model because uh people generally think that we eat healthy and that uh, olive oil is good for you and that uh uh, pasta and uh, i don't know little meat is good for you and that's and that's okay but we are on the other side on our on my side people are um, neglecting the model and dream and crave a hamburger <laughs> so uh, because it is a status symbol because people want to be American in Italy in, Italy, oh. in all of the Mediterranean hmm. uh, I mean America I always say this America has won <laughs> America has won by no doubt people Poor people, people in lost countries in North Africa, in Middle East, uh, in Sicily, wherever, want to be Americans because America still represents in the imagination. Uh, the, the health, the
3: freedom, the freedom,
4: richness, uh, success, mm-hmm. uh, promised land. It still is the promised land. So this is something. Um, important i think to say because uh, we are losing our model so what's going to happen if americans i mean come to us searching for a model which is slowly vanishing and uh even worse a lot of americans are so remote from this idea of the model that they can uh, accept anything we give them Hmm. they have very critical sense so Italians who are very very lovely people but great cheaters can build up any sort of stuff and so are very gullible a little bit a little bit <laughs> but I'm afraid I'm not so afraid for Americans that will they, they will manage their way anyway but uh, I'm afraid of the fact that we are losing the the the, the The correct path, because people want to eat hot dogs, want to eat hamburgers, want to eat. uh, uh, So these are aspirational foods, yes.
3: And and yet, for us, we aspire to um, your way of cooking that 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 is dying. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, so the whole farm-to-table movement here—it's a bit of a tired term, but. But, but uh, it 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 for us is like something new. And, in fact, it is so incredibly old. Um, it's really trying to get back to the roots of things and 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 we're looking for you to that. We in our cooking school are trying to bring that back to people to 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 really sort of um, buy fresh from the farm and yeah. and then learn how
4: to cook it. It's a growth. It's a growth of a society that starts slowly, very slowly. I totally believe in it because people are sick. I think that people will get to it. But in Italy, especially in Italy, where um, people are getting poorer, there's a lot of unemployment. I mean, we have a lot of social issues. It's not, it's not wealthy right now. Mm. In, a, in a domestic economy, an everyday uh, housekeeper has to think twice if she wants to spend five euros on a loaf of bread or of
3: one euro. Yeah, we've covered a lot of territory. Yes, uh, and and I just wonder, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up?
4: Well, I I I I want to add that I I'm very grateful to America because <laughs> uh, every time I come here. Uh, I feel at home. I feel that people understand what I'm talking about. I feel that people are very sympathetic, although we really live in different worlds. Uh, Although, uh, I mean, I was telling you before that you have a community that supports you, while I have a community that I need to kind of wake, wake up. And so it's a very different vision and task. But uh, I feel that my f- brothers and sisters are over here. And this is uh, very comforting for me uh, to come
3: here and find them. Well, we're delighted to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Fabrizia Lanza, for being with us today. It's, it's really great to meet you. Thank you for
1: having me. You know, that talk with Fabrizia is assurance that this movement, this seed to plate more than farm-to-table way of life has legs. It's like-minded, it's international, and it's pretty cool.
0: In the next three episodes, we continue to lay the groundwork of our story, our community. Next time, we put the farm in the farm cooking school. Malika Spencer of Roots to River and Amanda Midkiff of Locust Light will bring us out into their fields.
1: Till then, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Farm Cooks. Check out our website for Ian's sourdough recipe and to see upcoming classes. And if you have any questions, send them over to me, Kendra at thefarmcookingschool.com.
0: Today's episode, we want to thank Ian Knauer and Shelly Weissman, Fabrizio Lanza, and of course, our editor, Andrew Applegate. Till next time, cook well.
1: And eat your vegetables.